I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Gerard O'Donohue, Honorary Professor of Otology and Neurotology at the University of Nottingham and Consultant Neurootologist at Queen's Medical Center in Nottingham, England. Dr. O'Donohue has written a perspective article on the development of cochlear implants. Dr. O'Donohue, you explained that cochlear implants were developed to restore hearing to people who are too deaf to benefit from hearing aids. So how generally does hearing aid technology work as distinct from cochlear implants? Well, hearing aids simply amplify sound and present the amplified sound to the impaired inner ear of the deaf individual. Thus, the hair cells that remain in the hearing-impaired person are stimulated, and this allows electric activity to be generated in their auditory systems. However, in the profoundly deaf individual, there are no hair cells, and it's impossible for the inner ear to convert the incoming sound, the acoustical energy, into electrical energy for its transmission to the brain. Therefore, in a cochlear implant, it acts by bypassing the normal processes of the cochlea or inner ear and stimulates the auditory nerve endings directly. So it might be considered as a bypass, as it were, of the cochlear function. Early cochlear implants developed by William House were single-channel devices. How many of those were implanted and what were the results? While Dr. House's pioneering work, of course, has laid the foundations to what we do today, and indeed many of his ideas are mirrored in, even in today's technologies. Now, he implanted relatively small numbers in the early 60s, but they were all very carefully evaluated and laid the foundation for the work that was later to follow. In particular, he was able to show that these patients benefited from single-channel stimulation as an aid to lip-reading, as an aid to detecting environmental sounds, for instance. And, of course, he was able to confirm the safety of placing electrodes in the inner ear because many, of course, feared that that could result in meningitis and so forth, which was a big concern at the time. So uh, Dr. House's early work, even though it was done with single-channel devices, was absolutely crucial to what was to follow. The implants have come a long way since House's device. What were the major turning points in their development? And we should add the primary contributions of the three recent Lasker awardees, Graham Clark, Ingeborg Hochmeyer, and Blake Wilson. Well, it's a story that begins in France in 1957 or so in, in Paris, where a surgeon and a scientist were really looking at electrical stimulation of the auditory system, really out of academic interest, really. And quite serendipitously, a patient came across this description and brought it to Dr. House in consultation. And Dr. House immediately saw its potential as a real therapeutic possibility for deaf individuals. So it was really Dr. House who led a vanguard, really, in terms of electrical stimulation of the auditory system as a means of treating hearing-impaired individuals. Then the National Institute of Health in the United States formed a commission in 1977, what was called the Bilger Report, which looked in detail at the small number of implantees in the United States at that time and did indeed confirm that benefits emerged from implantation. But while perhaps these early patients did not, of course, understand speech, then followed some NIH conferences, two NIH consensus conferences, confirming really that multi-channel stimulation was necessary for speech understanding. And in the 1990s, there were developments really in sound processing technologies, which are fundamental really to understanding speech. So there was incremental steps forward, each of which was very important. 
Now, Graham Clark, of course, in Australia, he provided a whole portfolio of basic science, biological research and physical research, and his work informed the development of one important cochlear implant system that's in current use today. Uh, Ingeborg Hochmar had quite a different approach. Uh, she was an engineer along with her husband, who was a professor of engineering in Vienna and in Innsbruck. And these individuals looked at it from an engineering standpoint and developed a multi-channel device that was implantable and used in the very early days of cochlear implantation. So in engineering terms, their contribution was hugely significant. And Blake Wilson, of course, is a speech pathologist, and his major contribution was in the delivery of the electrical information to the auditory system. Prior to Wilson's development, it was thought that the simultaneous presentation of the electrical information was very important, but this led to a lot of overlap across channels and so on, which led to poor speech discrimination. And Blake Wilson's contribution was to suggest non-simultaneous presentation, or what he called interleaved sampling, as a means of better presenting the electrical information to the auditory system. And this indeed is now used in all commercially available implant systems. So each of these towering figures in the field of implantation contributed quite distinct ways, but some of their part, of course, is greater than what each of them would have done individually, and they are each very deserving of this great distinction. You yourself have worked on minimally invasive surgery for pediatric cochlear implantation, and you've been involved in a national audit of bilateral cochlear implants in children. Can you tell us what the surgery entails and what the results have been nationally? Now, surgery today is, of course, minimally invasive, and this, of course, is very important because not only are we implanting small children, we're doing it very often bilaterally. In other words, we're doing both ears at the one operative intervention. So it is very important that it is done as traumatically as possible. So a minimally invasive surgery is something that we all aspire to. It's also, we also have to bear in mind that children who are implanted today are likely to live uh, perhaps even 100 years or so, and it's important that every time surgery is done, Done, either revision surgery, that it is done as atraumatically as possible so as not to disturb the neuronal elements within the inner ear. The national order that we undertook recently in the UK looked at surgical outcomes in about a thousand consecutively implanted children, which was a large study, and we were particularly interested in the safety and effectiveness of the intervention, especially bilateral implantation. And I'm delighted to be able to report that there were very few complications, that the addition of a second side implantation added very little to the overall morbidity, and that it could be done safely and effectively, you know, in experienced centers across the country. So we were very encouraged by the result of the audit, which is, of course, of very great importance when one is implanting children with bioactive medical devices. What about adults who may have hearing loss later in life, may have some residual hearing? Is the question of cochlear implants different for them than for children who may be born deaf or have very early hearing loss? Yes, it is very different. Of course, adults who develop profound deafness later in life, of course, can capitalize on their memory for spoken language, which is often well retained even for many years after the onset of profound deafness. So once hearing is restored, actually the rehabilitation of these individuals is relatively uh, straightforward. Uh, children, however, who are born profoundly deaf are deprived of hearing during the sensitive periods for language development. And this is a really very huge deficit that these children have. 
auditory deprivation during these critical periods interferes with many information processing subsystems in the brain, and especially the working memory and retrieving and manipulating verbal information from working memory. So these children typically have very low language levels and low literacy levels, which is, of course, a huge handicap for these children as they you know, enter educational systems or seek employment later. As you point out in your article, cochlear implants still have some limitations, including the fact that their performance is considerably degraded by ambient noise. Are there ways to filter out certain sounds? Yes, there are, and this is a big challenge for the future. We need to be able to deliver better low-frequency fine structure information of the speech signal, which is poorly represented in the present-day implant systems. We also need to increase the number of effective channels of stimulation. Right now, there's a lot of overlap between the channels of stimulation, and we're looking at ways of better separating the channels and increasing the number of effective channels. And these are big engineering challenges, of course, but they will happen, and these will reduce the amount of electrical overlap across channels and improve the clarity of the sound signal, especially in noise. Music perception is another area of limitation. What is it with music perception that makes it difficult for the implants to deal with it? Music signal is very difficult. It's very different, I should say, from the speech signal. Music represents a very broad frequency range from very low frequencies at the base level to very high frequency information. Whereas in speech, of course, there's a lot of redundancy in speech. And speech is centered across certain energy bands or formants that can give us the information, especially around vowels and so on. Whereas there's very little redundancy in music. Also in music, because there are very few visual cues. As we speak to one another, we can get a lot of visual information from an individual's facial expression, from gesturing and so on from lip reading. These are important visual cues that are available to a hearing impaired individual. But for music, these cues are not present. So music depends on multiple independent sound sources all confronting us at once. So that is a huge encoding mission for the future. And it's something that we're looking very actively pursuing because, of course, music is a very important part of an individual's life. And being deprived of music is, of course, a great loss. But naturally, speech understanding was the first priority for those developing these cochlear implant systems. You mentioned increasing the number of channels. What else can we look for in terms of future development of these devices? Well, we are now looking at implanting patients who have greater residual hearing than was the case in the past. Initially, we implanted patients with absolutely no residual hearing, but now we're looking at ways of preserving low-frequency hearing as we implant uh, patients. And this low-frequency information can be used to combine the acoustical stimulation through a hearing aid as well as the electrical stimulation in the same ear. So by being able to combine acoustical stimulation with electrical stimulation, we feel we'll be able to confer better speech understanding for deaf individuals. We're also looking at ways, of course, of making implant systems biologically active, in other words, being able to deliver drug or possibly even stem cells through cochlear implant systems. This may be something that we'll be able to do in the future. And, of course, engineering, robotics, nanotechnology, and so forth will also be important in future developments in the auditory system. And ultimately, of course, many patients would like us to have these systems wholly implanted, in other words, have no external components whatsoever. And this is already available, and there are some prototypes that have been developed that are wholly implanted. So 
Life will not stay still in the domain of uh, cochlear implantation. It will, as in the past, continue to advance, continue to develop, and to continue to use both engineering, psychophysics, speech science, biomedicine in all its richness to bring all this technology to the benefit of deaf uh, individuals, be they children or adults. Thank you, Dr. O'Donoghue.